I'm Samuel Forsyth, and you're listening to Trail Voices. Hey friends, this is Sam checking in again from my apartment in Boulder, and I got to say I haven't made it outside of this place much at all today. Planning on making it outside in the morning, no matter what the weather, I don't have any idea what the weather will be, I haven't checked. In fact, things have been so out of order, I had to ask uh, my Amazon Echo today, Alexa, what day is it? Turns out it's Saturday. Saturday, March 28th is what she just said. I said that I'd read to you a piece of a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold this go-around, but uh, you'll have to wait just a little bit longer. Last night I had such a great conversation with my friend Julia German about one of her favorite books, and as well as a recent read of hers. I just wanted to give you that. She reads us a powerful passage from Letters to Young Poet by Rainier Maria Rocchi, and we discuss The Adventurer's Son by Roman Dial, and it's full of adventure, and I'm about halfway through it and really enjoying it. Julia German is a local trail runner, climber, an attorney, and a fun person to be around. If you ever have a chance to spend some miles with her on the trail, jump at the chance. I'm going to get you in uh, midway through our conversation. What do you see like the positive side? Do you have any kind of tips right now for dealing with this whole scenario we all have going on right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to, I think what's productive for people will be so different based on people's nature and, and their circumstances. You know, some people are at home with their families and that's just so different than being, you know, at home by yourself or uh, being at home with roommates or with one partner. So I think getting into a routine for anyone is going to be positive, you know, having those elements to your day and to your life that are important, whether you're a person that loves art or a person that loves reading or a person that, just has to have their home gym or whatever the thing is, right? I think a little more routine for most people at home is usually a good first step. Hey, I, I agree with you totally. And I've been like staying up later than normal, getting up later than normal and kind of let the routine slip. But I think it's going to help me a lot to just get up like early when I normally do. Do you like get out on like the trail? That's what I like to do in the morning. And yeah, you know, yeah. and stay with that. But I've noticed it's a thing. It's a theme because my neighbors who I normally never hear late at night, I woke up at 4.44 a.m. and they were still up, like laughing and stuff. I could hear them. It's like, not just us, but like everybody's out of their normal routine and everything's totally out of whack. Yeah, I've been staying up too late as well. And even when I go get in the bed, I will watch some show. And, you know, most of the time these days, you can let it roll into the next episode. And I have the thought of it, it's late. You're going to wake up late and feeling worse if you keep this up. And then my next thought is like, who cares? Like, so I wake up late and I feel worse. Like I still have a whole day to do yeah. all the things I have to do. That's plenty of time. Yeah. So there's, it's sort of this like pass on all the structure. Sure. Um, and it, it's the same, very freeing. Yeah. And at the yeah. same time, you don't beat yourself up over it. You're not like, like this morning, I think I 
slept in until nine or something like later than normal for sure. And, but it's, you know, even if you're in bed till noon or whatever, or 1 PM, you don't beat yourself up over it. It's like, but yeah. you might aim for something different tomorrow, you know, but it's like, not you're making me feel much better by the way. Cause I'm always out of the bed well before eight, but like <laughs> waking up to, cause the, you know, I'm very much like a with the sun kind of person, Yeah, but yeah. I'll stay up until like three in the morning as well, watching some show. And then seven 30, you know, my eyes are open. And then I think, you know, my paralegal is logged in because she has a stricter time schedule that she works by. And I'm like, man, she's been at work for half an hour. There's probably a bunch of emails and I'll lay there in bed and look at my emails on my phone and I feel so delinquent, you know, but, um, but yeah, thank you for saying that. I do have some other friends that get up at like noon or one and their life structure is super different and it works for them. And that's awesome. But it's nice yeah. to kind of remind yourself like this is okay. Like as long as you're getting your things done and you're not sleeping your whole day away, it's yeah, totally. probably not too unhealthy. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe you needed some more rest and, and maybe you needed a time just to lay around and, but, but if you want tomorrow to be different, you aim for that. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. But, uh, so I, um, I just got back actually from a run and it was pretty amazing. It was snowy up high. Then when I got into town, it was bike riding in the rain. So it was like snow and rain. But in both cases, it's definitely feels like spring. It's not like a winter snow and it yeah. felt, it felt amazing. That's awesome. That is the one thing to keep in mind for me at least. And I don't know if this does help other people, but, um, it's something I feel like I hear everybody echo that when you make the choice, you know, is the right choice, especially when it comes to getting yourself outside, you yeah. have to just trust that once you've done it, it'll always be the right choice. You know, you're always going to feel so good and it's going to be worth it. And people sometimes say like, well, sometimes I have a bad run. Sure. But that feeling of being alive and outside, it's like, I think transitions are hard. Um, and I always think about when I was a little kid, I lived on a, um, a dead end road that had these really forested areas and these big yards um, along the side. There's like a drainage ditch that was really, you know, leafy and branchy and then like forest. And I'd walk at night sometimes up and down because it was just this short little dead end road. Um, and it seemed like, you know, the forest, right? The quintessential yeah. like thing of stories. It's scary and dark in the forest. And one day I had this thought that like, you know, if I was in there, I bet like it wouldn't be so scary. Like once you're in. So I went and like crossed over the ditch and walked along in the forest for a while. And all of a sudden your eyes adjust to the dark and you can see everything in there and you can kind of see what's going on in the street. And the thought of going back out into the street, it's like you acclimated to the world you were walking through. And going back out in the street then felt like unreasonable oh, and wow. kind of intimidating. Such and, a, wow. Right? It's amazing how outside, that transition happened so fast. And then you got, so fast. one thing was yeah. like your new normal so quickly. And the other thing was now the abnormal thing. Right. And I feel that way when I have trouble getting myself out. Like once I'm outside, I always end up running a little more than I set out to run because I, I'm not quite ready to go back in yet. Like I want to stay in the mode that I'm in. So if I'm in a mode that I want to get out of, it's like this leap of faith. Like you have to just go switch gears. And once you do, it's going to be better, but that can be hard to do. Yeah. It's like, I was just talking to somebody else about coming off the Appalachian trail and how big of a transition that was for her coming back into normal life. But 
in a way, every run, especially one that lasts like two hours, is sort of a mini version of that. Yeah, right? There are those, you feel so, I don't know, maybe it's because we run a lot that we're so comfortable in our skin doing what we're doing. But um, yeah, for me, I always just think, well, transitions are hard. But um, And I think when you're stuck at home, like we all are, which kind of comes back to your you know, would I have any advice? The advice for myself is always to acknowledge the fact that when you're at home on your own, when you're really your own master of your schedule, um, you're responsible to sort of guide yourself through so many transitions, even if it's just getting up in the morning and, you know, making your meal. But all the things that you do throughout the day are transitions of your own by your own choice. And it can be a lot of energy to engage in all of those transitions. Because for me, they are more of a challenge than, you know, yeah. staying steady, even if the thing I'm doing is running, which, yeah, you know, sounds harder than sitting still. Well, once you're on the trail, it's just all you're doing is one foot in front of the other, keep breathing and that's it. And there's no other real, you know, you, you can just stay in that flow. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Be in the trees, on the dirt, like whatever. And it's like not ready to hit the uh, pavement and be in the buildings and all that yet. Yeah, exactly. But, um, so yeah, yeah. You've seems like you've been reading um, quite a bit. Is that do you typically read a lot? I do. Um, I have this awesome book club that I'm a part of that keeps me really engaged, and they have um, more recommendations than we get to. So I usually keep this running list, and I do a lot of audiobooks, um, which is great for running for me. Not always, you know. Sometimes you just can't focus when you're running. You want to just run, but um, but a lot of times, if I'm having trouble getting out the door, I'll start listening. And then I realize like my body feels free to do whatever because my mind is engaged. So I can just kind of sort of almost hide the transition to getting myself out, you know, in the book, which is kind of a good trick for me. Um, So yeah, that helps me read a lot of books. And, um, you know, like anything else, once I'm reading, I don't want to stop. So um, it ends up (laughs) (laughs) making turning the pages. It's true. Yeah. I'll be like, Ooh, I want to read another chapter. So, yeah. um, but well, yeah, I have this, so many great recommendations from folks. Well, this one you told me about the most recent one you were reading the adventurer's son yeah. uh, by Roman dial. I started that one and it is, it's kept me going pretty well. I'm about halfway through it now, but that awesome. one, yeah. Do you, is this the book you would want to talk about or did you have I another have- one you're th- thinking about? Well, so when you asked me if there was like a passage I wanted, I, yeah. it it's not even, well, I guess it's from a book. It's from um, a book called Letters to a Young Poet by Ooh, okay. Rilke. Do you know it? No. It's, it's like a short book and it's sort of eight letters and they're for, they're from, um, they're, I think they're real letters that he wrote, just collected. Um, let me pull up. But I have a friend that I was having, yeah, it's uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, Letters to a Poet. And he, this, this is a friend of mine that um, is working with another friend on sort of a, um, you know, life retrospective video. And, you know, she's a prominent athlete. And so, you know, he's, he's not, you know, a longtime prominent athlete, but he's this really interesting person that is engaged in this really cool project. And so we check in now and then. And for whatever reason, it was one of those friend meetings where you have a really nice connection all of a sudden. 
And he just sat there uh, at the patio, you know, of Breadworks getting lunch and quoted me this very long passage from one of the poems. And it kind of blew my mind because the poet is like really, um, you know, well, so it's older. Um, let me pull up the, let me see if the. What's the title of this? I think it's just Letters to Young Poet. I think okay. I just closed the screen. He sent it to me in an email where I bet it says everything. I immediately went and downloaded it on Audible and listened to it twice on the long run all the way through. So it's only like an hour and a half. Yeah, Letters to a Young Poet. And so basically the premise of the book is that a younger poet writes him asking for advice on his work. And he kind of writes back and says, you know, I'm honored that you'd ask, but I can't really criticize your work or give you pointers. It has to come from your heart. And he gets into all this stuff about life. And so they have a correspondence that goes back and forth that is in part about, you know, being a writer. But it's just like the themes that come up for me are, um, one, he talks about the value of solitude because you get the sense from the letters that this young man is being stationed during world. So this is like during, uh, in between the two world wars, I believe. And he's been stationed at some outpost where he's completely alone. And so Rilke's writing to him and saying, you know, it's good that you're alone. This time that you're spending in solitude will be so good for you. And here are all of my thoughts about solitude. And obviously that resonates with the position a lot of people are being put in today. I'll skip a couple of paragraphs so that it's not super long. I'll read you like the four that kind of bookend this quote. This is from, I think, letter number eight by Rilke. So he says, and to speak of solitude again, it becomes clear and clear that fundamentally, this is nothing that one can choose or refrain from. We are solitary. We can delude ourselves about this and act as if it were not true, that's all. But how much better is it to recognize that we are alone, yes, even to begin from this realization, it will, of course, make us dizzy for all points that our eyes used to rest on are taken away from us. There is no longer anything near us, and everything far away is infinitely far. A man taken out of his room and, almost without preparation or transition, placed on the heights of a great mountain range would feel something like that, an unequaled insecurity, an abandonment to the nameless. He would feel he was falling or think he was being catapulted out into space or exploded into a thousand pieces. What a colossal lie his brain would have to invent in order to catch up with and explain the situation of his senses. That is how all distances, all measures change for the person who becomes solitary. We must accept our reality as vastly as we possibly can. Everything, even the most unprecedented, must be possible within it. This is, in the end, the only kind of courage that is required of us. The courage to face the strangest, most unusual, most inexplicable experiences that can meet us. The fact that people have, in this sense, been cowardly has done infinite harm to life. The experiences that are called apparitions, the whole so-called spirit world, death, all these things that are so closely related to us, have through our daily defensiveness been so entirely pushed out of life that the senses with which we might have been able to grasp them have atrophied, to say nothing of God. And if we only, and if only we arrange our life in accordance with the principle 
which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So you mustn't be frightened if a sadness rises in front of you, larger than any you have ever seen. If an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and over everything you do, you must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand and will not let you fall. I thought that was pretty good. Wow. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we I think it's loneliness is something that we struggle with so much in life. Not just me, not just you, but not just in this time of COVID-19, but like all the time. And yes. this is like such a comforting piece, really. I mean, at least at the end it was to me. <laughs> it is. It starts off a little clearly he values um what he's calling you know the solitary but his description of it is still a bit terrifying and then the bit that I skipped he you know almost sort of shames you a bit describing how you know you should be more fearless and that um Mm, mm. you know we should be braver within our own selves within our own you know isolation at times um but connecting that back to sort of an idea of we've adapted to be so much like the world that we live in that you almost can't tell the difference between yourself and your environment. And so it's got so many themes that are so powerful. And then it comes around, like you said, to this really comforting line at the end that, I don't know, it almost feels a little bit like um, the poem Invictus, which was like always my favorite, that sort of, I am the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. And, you know, even the darkness shall not let you fall. It's, it's powerful. Yeah. And what he's saying about how alone you really are. And, um, I just think a lot of us have already come around to realizing that in life, we kind of realize how alone we are, at least I have. (laughs) So it's like, it's kind of like what he's saying is true. And I've already come to understand that. And it's, so it's not like so harsh. It wasn't that harsh to me when he was kind of describing that. Right. I hear that. And I, and I latch onto it, you know, it wakes me up to what, like, this is something to pay attention to because it's a familiar part of my thinking. But I think I would shift from saying, you know, loneliness may not be the the word, but yeah, solitary or, right. Or yeah, I'm trying to think of a different word, but yeah, not lo- loneliness isn't quite right. Cause that's kind Cause of I like sad. He's, yeah. Implied. I think he's doing away with the lack of connection being necessarily a part of solitariness. I think in his view, the more I've read of his uh, work on solitariness, which is quite a lot, he says a lot about solitude. um, I think he doesn't see it as a lack of connection though. And you can be like on a mountaintop and feel connected to people in ways. And, or you could be like in a restaurant with 10 people around you and all around you and feel totally lonely. So it's not... I don't know, being, being, yeah, being no, alone I mean, isn't necessarily you're out of connection with everything. Right. 
Like I, I spend a lot of time in my house by myself and I'll get a call from someone and just think, oh God, don't bother me. I don't want to be bothered. But I'll be out on the top of the mountain and I'll feel like a strong desire to reach out and connect to that same friend. And that feeling of connectedness is really altered by sort of the energy, I don't know, the location, whatever's going on in my mind, but not necessarily by whether I'm alone or not, right? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, I totally feel that. Or I understand the first part of that anyway, when you're out and you really like this, you might not have missed that person at all, but then suddenly you're out there and you're like, oh man, you have this desire to connect with them. Yeah. And, And you almost feel like, I don't know, I've, Maybe it's because so many of my friends um, have come out of running that when I'm out on the trail, I do feel like I'm with people a lot of the time. Whereas, you know, when I'm just hanging out in my house by myself working on a project, I often don't feel that way, you know? Totally. And do you think part of that is because we were surrounded by social media all the time? Like we kind of have, you know, I could see you, I could see your little picture on Facebook and but then when you go outside and you're away from all that is when you kind of want a real connection. Do you see that? Yeah, I think that's complicated. And I'm not sure I really know what I think about that. I'd have to think about it more, but my like initial reaction is that when I'm not, I feel like most input is taking me away from um sort of accessing my mind you know like if it's if it's like a friend and you're interacting not that that's great but like social media stuff a lot of the time um I guess for me in my house it's like all the things I have going on at the same time all the little multitasking projects and social media feels just like part of that noise And I feel like it prevents me from actually being very present with my thoughts. Mm, But when I am present with my thoughts, which is so much more likely, like you said, when you're away from social media up on a mountain, then yeah, that like frees my mind up to remember and perceive the connections I have to people. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's maybe a little strange because I do reach out to a lot of folks using social media and that does make me feel connected a lot of the time. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that, that real sense of sort of deep like love and gratitude for people and closeness to people that I just feel, I feel that way more when I'm away from all that noise. Yeah. Maybe just space opens up to allow that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I love that passage. Um, I was able to pull it I'm up so on my screen here too. So it's now I've kind of, now I have it so I can look at it again. Any other takeaways from that piece? Um, gosh, I could say a lot. Um, some of the stuff that he says about being within ourselves, um, that I skipped, of course, but some of what he speaks to, I think speaks to also what we're talking about. That sort of what, what's the difference when you're in your own space that's going on in your mind, like what is being cleared up. And, um, I think that he's a very big believer in sort of not being scared to look directly at things. But recognizing what we now, you know, 100 and change years later, um, think about when we think about mental health and like habits as sort of rutted brain pathways, right? So, you know, we have our habits of thinking, we have 
most of us that do endurance sports have sort of addictive behaviors, even if it's just in getting ourselves out and run, 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 run. Um, it seems like a real common theme in the community. And looking outside of those deeply rutted um, patterns of thought um, is hard to do for scientific reasons. But also when you think about it, it feels like our perception of it is that it feels uncomfortable and it feels a little scary. And a lot of us deal with anxiety. Um, and I think that comes along with it as well. When we take away sort of our comfort um, of being able to, you know, go out and spend time with people or go out and run or do whatever it is that the habit of behavior is, then we have to look around and see what, what else is there. And um, that's where the richness is, I think is what he's getting at that like the things that, that are fearful or that fear, fear feel fearful. Um, you know, if we really look at them closely, we'll realize that they aren't and then we'll see their value and then we'll be stronger. Yeah, exactly. And, like you looking into that little forest. And yeah, you went into so the forest. True. Yeah, you were like, it seemed like the scary place, and then it turned out to be like this nice, you know, neat forest. And then coming out was all of a sudden a different thing for you. And you're right, because I spent. And what he's trying to say is that, like, I think he says something like the that that you know, dangerous, that fearful thing will be your best friend. Will become like your your uh, this tool and this best friend of yours, and. <laughs> I think that's so true for me with that example. Cause I remember for years after that, every time I was doing anything where there was some sort of like edge of the forest involved, which, you know, comes up a lot when you're, I don't know, growing up doing camp things, whatever. And I, I took this really great comfort from being like, well, I could just go 10 feet that way and be sort of in my own safe, different world. So I ended up having this really bad habit of going on like, group things where I'd fall to the back of the group walking through a forest and I'd like, you know, like night hike things when I was, you know, a kid doing camp stuff or what have you. And I would go off the trail into the woods and turn my headlamp off and just stand there and let everybody leave. And then I would just enjoy that. Like, I don't know, like I had my, it felt like a powerful thing that like I had this almost like an alliance with the forest where it was scary for everyone else and we're going to pass through it. And we're going to get out of here and people would be giggling and doing whatever. And I don't know. It's like Br'er Rabbit said, like, don't throw me into the, into the thorns. Don't throw me into the briar patch. And then they punish him and they throw him into the briar patch and he laughs and he's like, I was born in the briar patch. And he runs off through the forest. <laughs> I think about that all the time. That was I exactly love that. what that was like. Yeah. I just love that visual though, too, being outside at nights and turning off your headlamp and just enjoying the open space. And it sounds like a moment of solitude too. I love that. Oh, it's great. Plus it led to so many like mischievous moments, you know, <laughs> someone else would sneak off to smoke weed or do something else. And I'd be up in a tree right next to them and they wouldn't know it. And Whoa. I'd see all these things happening. <laughs> I was a terrible little spy. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. Well, it reminds me of yesterday. I came across, I came around the corner on the trail and uh, this dad was like helping his little child <laughs> use the bathroom. Nice. And yeah. I was like, oh man, like what did I do? And I just like kept running and like looked away, but it's like, I didn't mean, yeah. I didn't mean to see anything, but and then right. if, if you're just hiding in a spot like you were, 
it's makes it so much more likely because people won't even know you're there and they'll just come up and do who knows what doing whatever private thing they snuck off to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. My friend um, was an arborist in Tennessee and he had, you know, this sort of slingshot that we would use to get the rope up in the tree and the trees there are huge. And this was in this park. It was like 80 feet up in the tree um, were some of the sort of still low branches. And I remember he, for fun one day, we went and we slung a rope, rope up there and went up and put a hammock up. And then I climbed up there to read and pulled the rope up behind me. So I was in this like central park of Nashville and people were totally doing drug deals like directly underneath me, but nobody would have ever thought to look up. I was up there for like five hours, just like reading into the evening before my my friend came back. It must have been a comfortable spot. Oh, it's an awesome spot. It really was. But you know, you wanted to spend the day having an afternoon of like reading and chilling you go up there and anyone that didn't see you go up, it's never going to notice you. So you see the craziest stuff happen. And where was that? Um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. That's what I thought you said, in, but I was like, huh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. Centennial park. They have a model, like a real size model of the Parthenon. And it's this kind of cool, cool park. But um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, Man, what a, it used to what be a, a little unsavory. What a wild <laughs> place to grow up. Did you see a lot of music? I did. I actually grew up singing opera. So that was oh another my. time in my life, but I was really into music back wow. then. Yeah. Will you sing us a little number? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an outdoor like, opera song to sing? I if you If you had me after a few drinks in person, but... I wouldn't let it get recorded. Okay. I'm going to secretly record that. There are one or two people around that have heard it, but yeah. That's funny. I'm just going to hide out in the woods somewhere near where you are running and hopefully you'll find that little spot <laughs> to belt out your opera where nobody's well, looking. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, out here you meet all these people that through PT or mindfulness, they talk about, you know, the power of breathing and breathing deep through your body. And, you know, you think about an opera singer's practice and you are resonating your body sort of as effectively as you can breathing deeply and, you know, making these ideally like very beautiful sounds. And, um, when I was a kid, I had kind of a rough childhood and this was the thing that kept me steady. Like I always thought of, um, my voice instructor that I worked with as like a therapist years later, I think about the conversations we had and I was like, that poor man should have been paid double time. But, um, (laughs) it's so powerful and it feels so good to like breathe that way. And so, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Anyone that's done it, this is why people, you know, even if their voices go and they don't keep up with it, it's why people that sing love to sing so much, I think. Yeah, well, I feel um, some uh, some kind of therapeutic relief happening when I'm singing in the shower, and then I yeah, totally yeah. But then I turn off the shower and I keep singing, and my voice suddenly doesn't sound as good. <laughs> I think that happens to all of so, us, especially when you leave the bathroom. You're like, "What happened?" I know it kills me too because it's like anything that you've ever been good at, even like you know I've. I've had people in my life that are like, oh, your voice sounds so nice still. Why do you think it sounds terrible? And it's like, it's like in this community when someone goes and runs a marathon and 
you know, I'm not fast. So when like a good friend of mine goes and runs a marathon, they invariably impress the pants off of me. And I'll call and tell them that. And they're so offended sometimes. Ugh, ugh, it was, oh, that was a terrible time. That was two minutes slower than my goal. You know, and I don't even, like, I get it now, but I'm like, two minutes over that length of time, like, you are still a badass, sir or ma'am, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, that is incredible. But I, the level of disdain and frustration that I see in them is exactly how it is when I hear my own voice, I'm like, Oh God, it's horrible. And I don't think it's like a marathon where it's close, like two minutes. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's pretty bad, but, um, but people are still real nice about it. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, now that we are, um, socially distancing, like now you have more time to bring it back and practice and work on that. So. I mean, theoretically, yes. Um, while true. you're doing work around the house, just, oh. When I think of it, I totally will. It's like one of the greatest parts of living alone is that I can sing whenever I want and I don't have to feel self-conscious because there's nobody that can hear me. It's pretty great. That is a really nice thing. And you know, I always wonder about people who um, play instruments like saxophone or something like that, trumpet, um, either do they just like live alone in a house far away from people or do they just belt <laughs> that out in their apartment, you know, and everybody hears the saxophone? Hi, that's a great question. I think that's gotta be a struggle for a lot of musicians. I know a lot of colleges, they have practice rooms and if the practice rooms are sort of available and you know about it, you can kind of sneak in and use them. But other than that, I don't know. I, the only other thing I've ever found where I felt comfortable singing that wasn't my car or when I've lived alone is the ocean. If you go really early in the morning and there's no one else around, it's so loud. It's really, really nice to like nice. sing into the ocean. I love that. I love that. Um, I've noticed you just you know, riding my bike, like if you're on a busy kind of road and you hear all the traffic noise and stuff, I feel pretty comfortable doing it then. Or like if you're, nice. in, or if you're in your car too, I guess, you know, until somebody at the stoplight looks over at you and you feel kind of exactly. weird. Exactly. I have to like, keep your eyes straight ahead. You definitely don't know that person and it doesn't matter, but it's still so embarrassing. Yeah. Although, I mean, think about it, right? Whenever you see someone rocking out hard in the car next to you, that makes your day every time. Makes you smile. Yeah. So what's wrong with it, right? Like maybe you look the fool, but you're probably delighting that person. <laughs> yeah, for real. Well, I don't know how much time you have. Do you have to, do you have to uh, get off of this call soon? Um, I'm not in a hurry. I was going to log into, um, a workout thing my friend's doing, but I have opened a beer, so I will not be working out. Um, <laughs> not until six 30. Do I have like a hard stop? Although Josephine is looking at me like mommy, yeah. I need you to throw the toy for me. Well, I was just curious then if you would, if you could give a little summary on, um, the adventures, son. Oh yeah. So, um, I'd say the sort of cliff notes are this uh, writer, Roman, um, what's his last name again? Roman Dial. Dial, that's right. Like Roman Dial Soap, Dial. you know, that's, I think, because yeah. this time. I've never heard really... the last name before. It's okay. a crazy name. And his son is also Roman Dial, but he goes by his middle name. Or Co he ends up going by Roman, but. Yeah, I think, it, his... I think his first name is, I think it's Cody Roman Dial. Cody, that's and then, right. Then he ends up going by Roman. That's right. Yeah. So, um, 
so this guy kind of gives an account of um, getting into mountaineering and getting into sort of what it sounds like was the beginning of adventure racing um, in Alaska and everywhere that he lived, meeting his wife and having kids and continuing to do this and then raising his kids where they really took um, what even I think for our community is pretty extreme adventures, like going to foreign countries and spending you know, a month in a rainforest and sort of just exploring off trail um, and camping in, in really sort of foreign and unexplored places for the time that they were doing that. And so this is how he raises his family. And he has this really great relationship with his son who gets pretty into adventuring himself. And then he continues to tell sort of the story of um, his son going off and doing these adventures um, throughout the sort of ins and outs of his development in his life as a young man. And then at a certain point, his son goes to Costa Rica and does a couple of pretty cool um, adventures that are notable. Um, and these are like orienteering. He's off trail a lot of the time. And he sets his sights on something that sounds really easier than some of the prior adventures in the same climate. And then they stop hearing from him and then nobody hears from him. And so he goes to Costa Rica to try to figure out what happened. And there's the sort of shift in the book from the first half of here's who we are. And then the second to like, here's my search for my son and how that ended. And um, I'd say, that's all you'd want to know going into it. Um, one of the themes that I mentioned earlier that I think is really interesting is this theme of, you know, in, in our kind of community of athletes and outdoors lovers, someone hears that you ran 100 miles in our community, and they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. So you're a longer distance runner right on, you know, whereas in almost every other part of the world, you say that and folks are like, what? You are crazy. That's insane, right? Why would you do that to yourself and all these things? we find ourselves doing sort of much less risky and not solo and not sort of orienteering. We get these questions of, you know, you're exposing yourself to so much risk and what's the sort of social and moral responsibility of that? And then when you add the element of being a parent into that, what's the social responsibility of raising a child um, to see that as normal and to be excited about that? And, uh, it really, because, you know, his son ends up getting, you know, getting lost out there. And then I won't ruin the story for sort of what they, what they discover has happened to him, but he really has to come to terms with, was this worth it? And I think that's a question that we all ask ourselves. So I think it's a really interesting question to put out there. And I, and I like the thoughtful way that he approaches it throughout the book. So that would be my summary. Yeah, and I think he had his own really sketchy experiences, and yeah, he um. Then I know before his son goes out for this final adventure, he's even thinking about talking him out of it. He's like, "That's yeah, sounds really dangerous." But then he thinks back on his own adventures and his adventures with his son, and he's like, "People always told us it was too dangerous. Now I'm going to be just kind of like those people if I say that to him." So he doesn't really say that to him, and, right? Uh, and that's not to bring it back to that passage from Rilke, but part of what I love about it is he says that, you know, the great harm that we do to life is this like lack of being willing to take in all of the experiences and be open to like all of the possibilities. And I think that's really easy for someone that runs a hundred miles in a controlled environment, you know, with aid stations and all that. 
to look at and say, you know, I know for me, I didn't think that was possible. And I'm sure that the community I was in thought that was a crazy risky thing to do. But now as a member of that running community, I don't think it's risky. Um, And I don't think it's crazy anymore. But I think there was something very powerful in having that mindset of like, well, I'm not going to tell myself that I know where my limits are. Like that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, But being open to that. And so I think with risk, that's sort of what he's speaking to as well is, the minute we start saying that's too dangerous, we have to evaluate like, well, okay, is it too dangerous because, um, you know, it's free soloing and um, it's Chaucy Rock. And so, you know, there really is just at any moment, the risk of falling and falling would mean death. Or is it risky because I personally don't know the ins and outs of this experience and someone else might know them and it might not actually be risky. And so I'm just putting at them my fears and my, lack of knowledge. And that question, I think, is so ever-present in our activities. And it's a really hard judgment to make because- It is, yeah. Yeah. You just, you never know someone's familiarity with a trail or with, you know, an area and you don't know their skill level and you don't know the precautions that they are taking. So it's hard to judge. But of course, you know, you see someone like this guy that fell on the flat irons earlier this year and he's like, oh, I'm climbing 5'11 or 12. And everyone that saw where he was was like, yeah, that was 5'8. That guy was an idiot. Like, you know, and it's it's easy to play, what is it, Sunday? What do they say? It, it, you know, to, to retrospectively judge. Um, yeah, Monday quarterback. See, is that the phrase? That's, that's the phrase, yeah. Neither um, one of us are probably huge football people. <laughs> I was like, why are you trying to use a football reference? What are you talking about? But yeah, it's easy after the fact because you can say, oh, wow, that person really didn't know what they were doing. But if someone was setting out, especially in this community where people do, um, a lot of people do have a lot of knowledge. I'm not going to presume that you don't know what you're doing, you know, but I don't also want to encourage someone that doesn't know what they're doing to think, well, I see everyone else doing this, so it's probably fine. So I think it is really a complicated question that we all deal with. Yeah, and especially if it's your son or daughter, like that's such a hard yeah. Thing to grapple with. Yeah. Cause one of the themes, right. In the community is that as we normalize, you know, say rock climbing, for example, I was, I was on sort of a think group about how to address some of the safety concerns in the climbing community as people that are getting really comfortable in the gym transition to outdoor rock climbing without any real education about the additional risks involved and what that really means. And it's an enormously different thing. There's a lot more you need to know. People think, oh, I led some climbs in the gym. I'm super strong. I'm good to go. And then they go out and get killed. So um, I think if you have children, there's a similar potential risk of normalizing, well, my family does this. This is just what we do. And obviously, there's a responsibility just like there is, you know, in that transition from indoor to outdoor climbing of saying, okay, but you really do need to be educated and mentored so that you know how to manage risk and what the risks look like and what the skills are involved to this new environment. And I think it's hard when you, you know, you just grow up in an environment where you sort of assume everything's okay until something goes wrong. But I'd say Roman Dial sounds like he was a really excellent mentor to his son. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think, and, and I think that's why it's a good book because you're not, reading it thinking, God, this irresponsible man, it's just, even with a lot of responsible behavior, there is still always risk. 
Yeah, there always is risk. And it's oftentimes the uh, people who have the most experience who are actually the most likely to get killed. And in, even in this case, yeah, you might have tons of experience navigating through jungles. I don't know what, or, you know, rafting down whitewater or whatnot. It's usually it's those really experienced people. At some point, they're the ones that die because they're the ones out there doing it all the time. But exactly. as a father, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to take away everything you enjoy about life and tell you not to do this stuff. It's, it's you know, what is it they say? Um, the only sure thing, you know, in life is death. So we're all going to die, you know? Is it really, I mean, it begs the question of like, is it morally or in any other way better? Can we make a judgment on this? But somebody you know, engages in life in a way that they find really fulfilling and it does maybe have more risk. Cause like you said, they're out there doing it more. Um, and I mean, shoot, you know, trees fall, rocks slide. Like even when you're being perfectly safe, um, things can just, I mean, I've had friends tell me stories of top roping, safe, established rock climbs, you know, and a huge boulder just pulls right off. And you know, I mean, these things just really are part of engaging in the natural environment. They are. And I guess I wanted to kind of touch back on something you said too, about people who go out and um, they learn a little bit and then they just think they're good to go, you know, so this stuff yeah. can happen to the most experienced people, but it can really happen to people um, who it's like their first times also just yeah. going out there yeah. and it could be skiing too. It could be like, some your buddy says, oh yeah, downhill skiing is easy. Just like, I'll take you down this black right away. Or it could be <laughs> climbing a flat iron. Oh, this is nothing. Like you could walk up this, but if it kind of depends on who the beginner person yeah. is. So you have to have a lot of trust in your partner. And you know, in this case, like Roman Dials, like a great, uh, he was like a great adventurer and mentor for his son, but you don't always have that. So I think it's also important to like know who your partner is, especially if they're the one leading you. Um, cause they could lead you into something really bad. And then if, Oh my God, I so agree. Yeah. I mean, I've known people that were plenty talented enough not to be unsafe and to be able to go out and do all the fun things they wanted to do, but it was just in their nature to strive to do something above their level. And they weren't even aware of that. And you, you know, I've, I've been out with people where, if you climbed with them in the gym or if you ran with them in group settings, you know, you adventured in, adventured in kind of group settings, you, you may never know their risk tolerance level, but you go out one-on-one -on -one two or three times and you realize I feel unsafe and this person is doing something unsafe. And, you know, they aren't aware enough of it to communicate that to you in advance. It is so hard sometimes to develop trust and to sort of properly judge a partner and even having those conversations you know, people, people all generally think that they are being safe, even when, you know, after the fact, you can say, okay, you made these choices, these were not safe choices. So it's, it can be very awkward, right? You know, never want to say to a friend, like, I'm sorry, but I don't feel comfortable going on adventures with you. Um, but that's, I think it's more common than people really want to admit. It totally is. And I, yeah. and I thought one of the first things that really struck out or stuck out to me in this book was about a partner one of his early partners. I don't know if you'll remember this part. One of his early partners, they basically like come to blows at one point. They have like a fist fight at one point. 
and I'm not even sure if that's the same partner, but there's a partner early in the book, a climbing partner, I believe, and they just don't get along very well. And then he's, yeah. he makes this point that if you have a strained relationship with somebody under stress, it's only going to get worse. That's oh, it's such a good point. His line. Yeah. And I just thought about that and thought, wow. I and not that and the book's about, you know, adventuring generally, but it relates most to me in terms of rock climbing because I haven't been on too many um, sort of orienteering running types of adventures, but a lot of rock climbing trips. I always try to explain to people that are either getting into climbing or, you know, aren't haven't been in climbing for a long time, how significant and sort of intimate it is to have a trusted climbing partner. Because yeah, like what we're talking about sounds so much like what we think of as like relationships, right? And it is, you want to find somebody that you can trust in a stressful situation that you would put your life in their hands that you also like being around, you know, and um, you kind of can't know that until you go out and test it um, fully. But, but it's, it, you know, it's amazing how you can have a pretty good climbing partner you don't even like um, because they check all these other very important boxes. But my God, when you find someone that you can talk to and you trust and all, it's, it's a powerful thing. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, right now I'm just thinking about those people who like spend nights on El Cap and stuff like for days oh and like, you know, tiny quarters with another person 24 hours a day. Yeah, it's. You know, it's, I don't know. I think anything you do where you kind of act as one organism. Yeah. Um, or like pacing somebody for a hundred miler. I mean, you have experience with totally. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, we talk a lot in the running community about how um, quickly you become really intimately close to your running friends. Like I was in a buddy's wedding and I'd only known him for a year or two, but um, you know, we went on a running trip together where, I drove him to, I think it was in Moab. And then we ran this whole 50 miler together because he'd signed up for the last minute. And he was like, ah, I'm not trying to be super fast. I'll go your pace. And so we ran the whole race together. And um, another friend kind of got made from the same group that just ran most of the race with us also. And it was like a year later, he invited me to be a groomswoman in his wedding. And I had to look back at the friendship and ask myself like, this is the coolest, like, this is one of the, like, biggest honors I've ever been given. And how did this happen? And it's running, like, running over one long weekend together. You just, you become so close to people. Um, so, yeah, it's super cool. <laughs> that's a good, yeah. that's a good example of it going the opposite way then. So, you guys, like, like each other, and then things got even better, like, after having this yeah. stressful time. I feel, like, I feel like that's how most of my running friends are, right? Like you meet them in these group runs and you have these little interactions and it's all so disjointed because there's a bunch of people and there's the pub and you're trying to eat and have your dinner and, you know, interact with 30 people at the same time. And then, like you said, you go pay someone and it's just you and your runner or you and your pacer. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like those people are my family after that. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, after an experience like that, do you often find yourself in runs later where you're kind of feels like they're there with you because you spent so much time with them running before? <laughs> yeah. I think about them all the time. Yeah. I mean, you could ask anyone that's been, you know, a close friend of mine. I can think of like three or four people in particular right off the, just come immediately to mind where I talk about them so much more because whenever I'm running, I think, oh yeah, well, it's like, my friend Matt Shaw said, or, oh yeah, no, it's like Nick always says. And 
um, it's these are the people that were with me in these like intense moments. And so now they're just with me, you know? Like I think of my friend Aaron being so happy to run the last 18 miles of Bighorn with me. And I couldn't let her down, even though I was having a terrible race. And so I was like, well, she'll be so happy when I see and there she was, you know, and I just I think of her all the time and how happy she was and it motivates me still. So I'll be out running and I'll definitely somebody I had been running with, it will suddenly feel like we're running together and I'll kind of remember how they look when they run and stuff. And they'll be like right there. And um, sometimes I even sort of embody like a little bit of their running style. I think just because I'm sort of thinking about them and. Oh, that's very cool. being, Being out there with me, but. Yeah, well, I should probably not take much more of your time. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much for calling. This was a really nice conversation to get to have. Yeah, this has been really good. I can't wait to uh, actually uh, run on the trail with you again sometime. Yeah, Sam, it would be so much fun. And keep keep posting your pictures. They make me happy every time I see them. <laughs> nice. I'll keep following along on your uh, home uh, improvements, too. <laughs> But yeah, I guess one more time for the listener, that last book we were talking about is The Adventurer's Son, a memoir by Roman Dial. So yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Julia. It's so good to check in with you and yeah, just get to talk to you. I really appreciate it. You too, Sam. Have a great night. <laughs> you too. Bye. All right. Bye. Last week, we closed with the Washing Hands song by Neil Diamond. I'd like to close this one out with a song performed by Brad Fitch. Cowboy Brad is an Estes Park musician. He's a park ranger and someone who truly cares about nature. He's been uploading videos to Facebook lately, and most of them are him singing outside. In this one, he's wearing a well-worn cowboy hat in front of a backdrop of boulders, pine needles, and ponderosa pine. This is I Heard an Owl, written by Carrie Newcomer. and confused and I stood naked and bewildered by the evil people do and up upon the hill there is a terrible sign that tells the story of what darkness waits if we leave the light behind so don't tell me hate is ever right on God's will these are the ourselves and the whole world weeps and is we being still though shaken I still believe the best in what we all can be and the only peace this world will know can only come from love I am a voice that's calling out Across the great divide But I am only one person Still I have to try And the questions fall like leaves of dust And rise like prayers above And the only word is courage And the only answer is love So don't tell me hate Is ever right or God's will These are the wheels we put in motion ourselves 
and the whole world weeps And he's weeping still Though shaken I still believe The best of what we all can be And the only peace this world can know Will only come from love some light to see in this time of such deep loss let's treat each other peacefully and the arms of God will gather in each sparrow that falls and makes no separation just fiercely loves us all so don't tell me hate is ever right or God's will these are the wheels we put in motion ourselves And the whole world weeps And is weeping still Though shaken I still believe The best in what we all can be And the only peace this world will know Can only come from love It only comes from love Come from love